Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 122 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk about the autumn color forecast and what creates that brilliant annual tree foliage display with John Seiler, alumni distinguished professor of forest biology at Virginia Tech. The plant profile is on colchicum and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events. This episode, we're joined by Professor John Seiler. He specializes in environmental stress effects on woody plant physiology, including water and pollutant stresses. And he is the Honorable and Mrs. Shelton H. Short Professor of Forestry at Virginia Tech and was named an Alumni Distinguished Professor in recognition of his extraordinary academic citizenship and distinguished service within the Virginia Tech community. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. So instead of calling you Professor Sio the whole time, I think I'm going to go with John. How's that? <laughs> That's absolutely fine. <laughs> Great. So John, we like to ask our guests on the Garden DC podcast about their background and how they got into horticulture and, and forestry and plant physiology. And we're going to dial it all the way back to baby Professor Seiler and ask if you were born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? Well, that's a great first question because I grew up in Pittsburgh and when we said we'd go play out in the woods, it would just be a little strip of trees between, you know, homes in the community that I lived in. And Mm -hmm. uh, that was the woods to me, you know, and we would be out there playing various games. I wasn't doing biological things. You know, we'd be doing games like hide and seek and army and all sorts of stuff. And uh, one time I came upon a Ranger Rick nature magazine and uh, I attribute my interest in this to that magazine. And then after a lot of hounding, I got my parents to get me a subscription to that. And then the rest is history. Uh, I went into, well, I, I, you know, I had to focus on what I was going to do, wildlife or trees. And I still like both quite a bit, but I uh, then got my degrees on the tree side of things, the tree biology side. Wow. Somebody who can trace directly to National Wildlife Federation and Ranger Rick. And we've, we've had a couple guests from the NWF on the podcast and, I do want to say as a child, I read Ranger Rick as well, and I still have a love for raccoons from that magazine. (laughs) There you go. So um, you picked the tree side of things. Did you go to school in Pennsylvania or at Virginia Tech or where? Uh, Yeah, uh, well, both. Uh, Mm -hmm. So then I went headed off to uh, Penn State, and I was fortunate enough to start my first two years at a little branch campus called Mon Alto. Uh, Penn State has a big branch campus system scattered all throughout the state. And Mon Alto was the place where they had their forestry technician program. 
Uh, that, that's a two-year program. So if you started your four-year bachelor's of science in forestry at that small branch campus, you could start taking forestry classes your very first year. And this place was just literally embedded right in the woods. Uh, you had to cross a bridge over a trout stream to, to get to the dormitory. And then right out the back of the dormitory, you were in uh, thousands of acres of uh, state forest land. Uh, so it was a great way to start out. And then I, after two years, you can only stay there two years, of course, and then you transfer up to the main campus and state college. And I finished with a BS degree in forest resource management and a second BS degree in environmental resource management. Uh, I kind of, I wanted to be a person who was sort of in the middle with different stakeholders. And I kind of wanted to saw myself as being a mediator, you know, understanding the environmentalist side, understanding uh, the more uh, tree harvesting side of things. And there was a lot of controversy back then, mm-hmm. but at the time the job market was horrible and no one got employment. Uh, I mean, basically no one in my graduating class uh, other than a few, you know, you got some 90 day appointments and people hung in there long enough to eventually get hired by the forest service or something like that. But anyway, that made me, I, I decided, uh, I found out well, I was pretty good at academics. So then I went on to uh, graduate school at Penn State and got my master's degree at Penn State and then came to Virginia Tech uh, for my PhD and had no plans of staying here. But as I finished up, my major professor uh, of all things left the university and Long story short, I ended up with his office, his desk, his telephone, uh, his computer, <laughs> and, and his job. And the rest is history. I've been here ever since. Hmm. So fortuitous timing. Yeah, very much so. Hmm. And so you teach in what's called the College of Natural Resources and Environment. Can you tell me a little bit about the courses? Well, uh, I teach a lot of classes, probably more than uh, an average a professor at a university. Uh, so uh, this semester, for example, I'm teaching a large lecture class uh, for non-majors. Uh, so there's engineers in there, music majors, criminology, economics, business people, but they're taking this class called Appalachian Forest Ecology, and that can count as one of their sciences. And it's Kind of it. We don't get too. We don't dive in too deep, but we cover a really broad range of topics uh, in forest ecology, and it's become really popular. You know, you know, people that like to go out and hike or just like the outdoors, but their their career is not in that. They they all enjoy taking that because it helps them understand kind of what they're looking at outdoors a bit more. Uh, then I also teach a forest biology course, and that's that's way more hardcore. That's for our majors. And they take that after a year of freshman biology. So then we dive in deep uh, right into tree biology. And uh, that's a much more difficult course than the other one I described. And then I also teach a third class, and that is tree identification. It's called dendrology, but it's basically just total. Their whole grade is based on identifying trees. And... Mm -hmm. um, that's a very difficult class for them. It's got 
uh, not really a deserved reputation. The, 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 pe- people do generally well in it, but the reputation is it's really, really hard. Uh, and, and it is. It's, it's a lot of like criti- quick critical thinking, you know, on the fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't memorize your way through it, you know. Uh, you have to look at a lot of facts real quick at what you're seeing and then decide like what, what that tree then is. Uh, and then I teach graduate classes in, uh, in ecophysiology. That's kind of a big word, but uh, so I'm a tree physiologist, but then I, I study what physiologically changes that allows trees to perform in different situations. Uh, I, I kind of investigate, we know that when we fertilize plants, you know, they grow better. Well, what I kind of do is dive in deep and like what exactly changes in their physiology that makes them grow better. Uh, so that's kind of my graduate side of things. Uh, and then that, that, that ties right into what my research has been over the years, looking at the internal physiological things that are changing in response to all sorts of different things over the years from acid rain to elevated CO2 to uh, forest management practices what does what does it do to the tree that makes them respond a certain way Hmm. that's fascinating and before we jump into our fall color forecast overall topic you had alluded to during your earlier years in college that there was a conflict between forestry and dendrology or you know uh basically the business side of things and the environmental side of things and that I think has changed over the years a bit. And now that I'm hearing conflicts between eco-minded people who love their trees, but then they want solar power or then they want a sidewalk in their neighborhood. And you might have to take out a couple of those big trees. Are you finding that? Yeah. You know, there's always been some tension there, you know, Uh, and the exact reasons behind it kind of changed a bit over the years. Like, you know, one point, uh, you know, clear cutting is all really, really bad, you know, and, and we need to stop it. And, uh, but it's it's all based on a misunderstanding of what's even being done on the forest management side. You know, foresters are actually the original environmentalists. Uh, and some people would cringe even at that thought because they think, oh, harvesting a tree, how horrible. Uh, but don't think anything of when every year we harvest the cornfield, you know, and then it and then it sits there all winter with erosion running across it. Uh, so, you know, early on, there's been the clear cutting controversy and the you know, national forest system has to respond to that. And then, you know, as you alluded to, you know, we're cutting down large numbers of trees to uh, put in solar panels and we're cutting down large numbers of trees to uh, make wood pellets out of that we're actually shipping overseas to Europe. So there's a lot, a lot of strange things, and I, I, it's not it's cliche to say this, but it's just really true. It's always way more complicated than people people think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of gray area in there because you know you yeah. want the trees and you want solar and you want a clean burning fuel like wood pellets or something like that, rather than digging yeah. up coal. So it's it's a lot of give and take. Right. I mean, even as simple as, you know, well, then people want their wood floor or people want their wooden stairs or their nice piece of furniture. And, 
and then wonder why the price of lumber goes up. And it's it's all the different policy decisions that get make in the, the push and pull of it all. Mm-hmm. And not to pull us too far off topic, but I was just reading about how the wood in your home can sequester carbon for decades and, and how that was preferable to other building materials. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it, it sits there locked up for uh, years and years and years. And uh, it's not an area that I do my research on, but in our college, uh, we have people that uh, do whole systems approach to this and, and, and actually give very specific quantified numbers to these things. You know, that you have to consider the average life of a certain type of home. Uh, they, they use big laminated pieces of wood in larger buildings. And uh, so it's another one of these things where it's, it's actually very, very complicated. Uh, but uh, there, so there's people that actually get, get their PhD degrees in these things. And we have them in our college and that's what their research programs are. Wow. Well, we're going to have to get back into that yeah. and explore that. Yeah. Yeah. You need, you need another podcast for that. one. Yes. <laughs> A whole other one. So let's turn to our topic of the hour and that is our autumn color forecast or leaf peeping and what is going to be the forecast for fall of 2022 are we going to have a gorgeous leaf display and is it going to be the usual timing yeah okay well one thing i always try to impress upon people is we we honestly never have a bad year okay Uh, i always say we have good better and best years uh, now, some some years get tagged as being a bad year, and and they are a little. They're not quite as good as other years because we'll get into some of this. There there's, there are environmental things going on that cause it to end sooner or not be quite as quite as vibrant. But it's always really really good, and but some years get actually more than like most years when they someone remembers it as a bad year. What really happened was it was a bad weekend like really bad weather the weekend of the peak season and people didn't go out and look at leaves or, you know, even a period of bad, you know, a whole week of bad weather, which, you know, we can get that this time of year. Right. And it knocks the leaves down early. People didn't, no one wants to drive out to the mountains when it's raining. And then those things get remembered as, well, that wasn't a very good year that year, was it? You know, and in a way it wasn't because maybe the leaves came down a little early uh, but if you were able to get out there, you always find uh, good trees to look at. Uh, this year, though, I think we're going to have a best year, a really good year. And that's because we got a large amount of rain uh, timed really well about August 5th, about for a whole month from starting on August 15th. And we just had a lot of rain throughout the whole region. And that's left the uh, soil moisture levels very well supplied and really you know filled up and the leaves are very well and the trees are very well hydrated which is going to set things up very well for good color because some of the color uh, not all of it some of the color though is our sugar compounds Uh, the red compounds are a chemical called anthocyanins and those form best when the trees have a lot of good excess sugar. So, so they're in good shape. They've been well fed, we can call it that. And when we, have a, when we had the rain there, like we did, 
photosynthetic rates stayed very high in the trees. And so they have good carbohydrate levels. They're well fed. And so that bodes well for having a lot of red pigments develop. In years where we get really dry this time of year, uh, photosynthesis starts to shut down sooner. You know, it's, when it gets really dry, it'll, it'll shut down during the day and be very low. And that just leaves the trees in a poor condition, like not quite as well fed. And they don't spend nearly the energy they do producing the red pigments. And so then it's the reds are not quite as vibrant and don't pop quite as much. Uh, so the trees are well hydrated. It, they should stay on the trees uh, the normal amount of time because, you know, a drought will also cause them to upsize their leaves, cause them to drop off sooner uh, because they basically kind of like give up. But, you know, it's getting so dry, we got to get rid of these mm-hmm. leaves and, and they'll start dropping early and they'll start changing a little bit earlier too. Uh, and I don't think we're going to have any of that either. Uh, so everything's setting up nice. Now, we were just talking how it, it is getting a little dry again throughout the whole region. Uh, but we're looking like we're going to be getting some substantial rain here in the next several days, uh, thanks to the hurricane remnant that's going to be barreling up from the south. Hmm. And so usual peak time for the mid-Atlantic, I guess we're focusing mostly on the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah, right. So I, I'm, I'm going to call it about October 29th, uh, but I always also say it, it, it's long uh, because we have, such a bio, we have such a diversity of tree species here that we have a lot that go early. We have tree species that go late. Uh, and tree species kind of in the middle. So anywhere from, I'd say, October 22nd, and, and where I'm getting that date, I'm just picking Saturdays because that's when people can get out. And you, and you have to remember, the trees don't know it's a Saturday, okay? So so the peak could be on a Wednesday, right? But people want to know, hey, what's the weekend, right? So I'm going to say October 22nd all the way through November 5, uh, depending exactly where you're at. You know, in the north, of course, it's likely to go a little sooner. Higher elevation is, makes it go a little earlier, too. And then the opposite, southern and lower elevation would make it tend more towards the November date. So that that's a two-week window where I think I, I, people wouldn't be too disappointed if they uh, get out during that time. Hmm. And it's nice that you mentioned the biodiversity and that it's not just one type of tree that's all of a sudden you know like up north it might just be a sugar maple show or in the west it might be you know ashes or something else that we have different things that climax at different times yeah you know uh we're really really fortunate here uh you know the whole the whole appalachian region and particularly the southern appalachian region uh has some of the highest tree biodiversity uh actually in the world not just, uh, you know, we're not, we're not the highest, but it, it, it's very, very high. We have a big mix of trees and they vary depending on what elevation you're at. And they also vary strongly on what aspect the mountain is facing. That, that's meaning does the mountain face north, south, east, west, and everything in between. Uh, and those, those two things uh, play big roles in what, the, what tree species are there. So in a place like Virginia, 
you know, when, when you just go around the bend in the Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, this is why all of a sudden you go, whoa, and you see what I call a firecracker tree, you know, like, wow. Uh, and then you go around another bend and it's a yellow tree and another you turn around again, you have a, have a red tree because the tree species are constantly changing as you change the aspect north or north or south, east, west. And then you're also going up and down as you as you drive along uh, something like the Blue Ridge Parkway. And so it's a tree biodiversity that's that's given you all the different ranges and color. And that diversity is extending uh, the color season here as well. Um, you know, our peak weekend, our, our forests here are dominated by oaks primarily. So they kind of will drive the show for the peak weekend. But if you were out there early and some of the oaks weren't out, you'd still see black gum, which is beautiful red, uh, never really disappoints oranges and reds, kind of almost similar to like what sugar maple does up in the New England area. Uh, it never disappoints and it goes, it, it turns early. So if you weren't right at the, right at the peak, uh, you'll be able to see black gum and some other early trees. And then later when the oaks are peaking, the black gums have dropped their leaves, but uh, oaks and uh, sourwoods are out, for example. So all these things, many different trees changing at many different times uh, result in a, a really good, good season down here. So you mentioned one of my favorites, which is the black gum Nissa sabbatica. Yeah. Um, are there other trees that you recommend, say, for a home gardener to plant for a beautiful fall color? Well, you know, one that doesn't get used enough, and it's kind of coming in a little bit, uh, is scarlet oak. Uh, that, well, turns scarlet, and it hardly ever disappoints either. Hmm. And that's one. So if you had black gum, this is a great example right here, this pair. Black gum goes early, scarlet oak goes late. So you'd even be extending, like the homeowner, get some diversity just in your yard. And that would be a great pair of trees right there. Uh, you, you, you have red earlier, like black gums are changing right now. Uh, in fact, we, we teach our students in the tree ID class, we tell them, hey, this only works in the fall. But when you when you see these red leaves already and none of the other trees are have any red leaves, it's a black gum. <laughs> now, it only works for about two weeks, but it's a, it's a really big help for them. Uh, and then Scarlet Oaks, one of, just about one of the last ones to go. It can be two or three weeks behind a, uh, a Scarlet Oak. Yeah, I find my oaks that I have in my yard, they will hang on to their foliage well into December, um, if not even later. Yeah, you know, that whole family, the Phagaceae family that the oaks are in, there's a lot of those trees that hold on to their leaves. And some of them hold on to them all winter. Some oaks do, but a real a real famous one and a, and a beautiful one that you could get for your yard would be American Beach. Uh Vegas grandifolia and grand foliage refers to the golden yellow fall colors it turns. And then beech, it's it's really strange. It holds on to brown leaves all winter long. I get lots of questions. What's what's this tree on the as I'm on the interstate that has the brown leaves in the center of them? They kind of hold mm -hmm. them in the center. Uh, so you're you're absolutely right. That that whole family tends to have uh, tends to do that, and some more than others. Yeah, I had read somewhere that where they're holding on to it on the branches is either the new growth of the branches or that it's a younger tree. 
it, and that, that that's true, but that also varies some with with different different species. That's why in the in the beach they tend to be in the center more, and and it does tend to be younger ones that that will do it. But then there, there's others that it, it varies a bit, and we're back to our diversity. <laughs> so so we, even that we we have a range of that mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, I was going to mention one of my favorite fall color trees is the ginkgo and that golden color. But then the leaf drop is the complete opposite of the oaks where it's, you know, almost overnight, basically. Yeah, it's funny you bring that one up because we just uh, taught that tree. It was one of the ones we taught just yesterday. And I was telling them that very thing. uh, It's a color is hard to beat, honestly. It's a such a beautiful deep deep rich yellow and then how they drop them all basically overnight and you have a carpet of them on the on the ground so yeah it's a great one and for other aspects of fall color i'm thinking maybe fruit or nuts like acorn or bark Uh, is there any exemplary trees you can think of in those categories uh a great uh now it's not a native tree our uh so you got to have a little caution here. You know, Chinese elm has the really probably one of the most fascinating barks, and it, it, it's the one that gets uh, almost jigsaw puzzle-like pieces that pop off the bark, and it's almost orange underneath, and, and then the surrounding bark is a more gray-brown. And I get a lot of comments about that one in the winter. People notice the bark more then, uh, but that one. You know, in, in some of the southern states, that's that's actually becoming quite an invasive pest. So uh, maybe exercise some caution with something uh, like that. Um, native tree wise, you know, maybe American sycamore is one that's got a really rich and interesting uh, bark. That's a that's a great winter one as well. Now that it doesn't have it's not known for its fall color at all. But uh, it, it's kind of famous for its uh, kind of camouflage, patchy bark. The, the mm-hmm. sycamore is. Yeah, and it sticks out, you know, you know, like almost like a ghost <laughs> amongst oh, yeah. other some, trees. Yeah, some of some of them can be nearly white, mm-hmm. and, and others have more of a range and look more camouflage. But yeah, some will be be quite quite white. And, and I'll get asked about that. P- people will think they're white birch or something, and I'll mm-hmm. be like, no, 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 they're not that. But they, they can be that white, yeah. Yeah, and that does touch on the river birch and that family as well, and their beautiful bark. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's you're naming all these ones we just went over actually in our in our class here. Yeah, river <laughs> birch with its uh, peeling and really really unique color amongst the birches is a great one. Uh, one that is really cool, but it's not really found much commercially to buy is yellow birch. Uh, I've got one in my yard that I was fortunate enough to dig off of a research site before we were done. <laughs> so uh, I have a lot of trees in my yard that I've, are, are leftovers from studies and investigations that we've done. But that's one that I you almost wish it was produced more in the nursery industry, yellow birch, uh, because it's got golden yellow bark that's peel almost as peely as the river birch is. But you... Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I've ever seen it for sale, actually. Yeah, I can't recall ever seeing it at a wholesale nursery or, or tree farm yeah, or anywhere. Right, and I uh, it it seems to do, you know, it likes cool, moist habitats, but 
uh, in the native landscape, but it, it seems to be doing just fine in a pretty hot, dry yard that I've got. So uh, that might be one to push on people a little bit to, and see if it, it can pick up uh, in sales and get mm. used a bit We'll have more. to talk to Dr. Durr about that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and see if we can get that in the trade. Yeah. Uh, so a couple smaller trees I was thinking about that people don't think so much about for fall foliage because they're ornamental in other seasons is the native dogwood is one and then crepe myrtle, which is obviously not native. Yeah. Yeah, the dogwoods uh that, that now there's another good example that they they tend to go kind of early. Uh, I was just pointing that out as well yesterday. Uh, they're they're already here in Blacksburg at least. They're pretty much all a deep maroon color already. Where the hillsides are still pretty much green here. We have very just a little bit of color starting to poke. I mean, just a very very little. But they're they're already uh, just about at their peak. The flowering dogwoods are. And I, I was actually explaining to people how if you really like dogwood flowers, uh, to plant. A mix of our native state tree flowering dogwood and then plant kusa dogwood uh, which i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with again it's not native but it's not known to be a pest and escape at all but if you plant a mixture of uh flowering dogwood and kusa dogwood you'll have dogwood blooms for uh, just about a whole month in your yard it'll be the envy of the neighborhood nice yeah we just did an episode of the podcast on japanese maples and of course, have to mention those just for their stunning fall color. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, there's such a variability in those things, too. Yeah. Another good choice for small, small, tight places. You know, one that is quite common, but it's honestly hard to beat. And it would be relatively one of the more inexpensive trees to get is, is our red maple, hmm. uh, where now it takes maybe a little. You could buy particular cultivars because some of them just will turn yellow and then that, that's all they'll turn like i have one in my yard it's very big now and it's just it's kind of disappointing because it only turns yellow but uh, most of them uh, will turn yellow and red on even on the same leaf uh, and some quite brilliant red that, that almost give sugar maple a run for the money and uh, they're very easy to grow and very common and easy you know, to find at a nursery uh, so I, I wouldn't put that one off either. And that's actually uh, the most abundant tree in the forest of Virginia by uh, stems per acre. Hmm. There's that, that is the most abundant tree in the state of Virginia, red maple. And that does bring up um, what trees in our area are on the increase and what are declining, say, from insect oh. issues like the ash so, so that you're not seeing the same color combinations that you might have a decade or two ago um, in the mountains yeah good good question because well one one remember the oaks really dominate the natural hillsides and so we're not seeing really big shifts in color because they make up the vast majority of the tree species out there. And there's a lot, wide range of oaks. Um, and there's no real big, there, there's no, well, if we ever have some big disease come in on oaks, we really uh, need, we, we, we'd be getting very nervous about that because it's, 
uh, a huge component of forests all over North America. But thankfully, we don't have any major, huge, big pests that are really pounding the oaks right now. Gypsy moth used to be a really big thing in that uh, it, it still flares up. That's sort of how I would say that kind of flares up, but it's, I don't want to say it's settled into an equilibrium. That might be overstating it, but things aren't as bad as it, that it was in the late seventies and early eighties. Mm-hmm. So oaks are pretty stable, pretty healthy. So things stay pretty good. But of course, uh, ash right now, uh, pretty much this emerald ash borer has swept through the state. There's a small portion of the eastern side that uh, it's not quite there yet, but it's going to be there within a couple of years. And so ash are, are kind of gone. But they're, they're never a major component of what people see on the hillside. Now, if you have had one in your yard that you love to see change color all the time, of course, that could be gone now. But it's we wouldn't you won't notice it that much on on a river float or a drive in the in the country um other things you know we're, we're you know we're worried about the lantern fly and some other things but again they're not it, unless we get something that really hits the oaks we're not going to notice a big why like people driving around saying like you know their colors just aren't what they used to be because this is gone they, they, they wouldn't say that about ash because it's not not a major component of the uh, forest system they're, they're just sort of scattered smaller amounts mm-hmm. yeah i had wondered about the proportion of ash since they're kind of yeah. going downhill fast and i didn't oh, know very fast Mm-hmm. You know, in some places, it's you know, it's not the same. Like in some bottomlands, like along a, a, a river, uh, you can have a, a, a small part of the overall ecosystem that is you know largely ash dominated, and you'd notice that. Uh, but kind of airplane level view, uh, it, you, we're pretty well buffered still, is what I'm saying. So it's not to say like, well, you know, he's never seen this then. Yeah, there there are places that on a float trip or something, you and you saw all the green ash get get eliminated like that. You would uh, you, you would definitely notice it there. Yeah, so it's not that it doesn't ever dominate, but it it, it is smaller amounts. Hmm. And so for timing, um, do you think that there has been any shift, say because of climate change, uh, that the peak is coming earlier or later than it used to? Yeah, no, I don't. And I'll, uh, now I, I can't say I have a published paper on this, okay? But here, here's, here's what I can, can say. Uh, because this class I teach, the tree identification class, I go to the same places the same time every year. So, and I go look at the same trees at, the same, at these places at the same time every year. And uh, I don't see any shift other than sometimes some years it's early, sometimes it's late. And there's a good biological explanation for this as well. The, <laughs> excuse me, the length of the day, well, actually it's the length of the night, but then that still means it's the length of the day, right? Okay. But the length of the night increasing and the shortening of the days is the main envir- environmental signal for leaf color change. 
And that doesn't change unless the Earth's rotation seriously changes. And then I think we'd have other problems <laughs> to worry about if that started shifting. Uh, but so it, it's always going to be about the same time every year because the length of the day is the signal. For example, when I have seedlings right now in the greenhouse and it's, it's staying warm. Uh, they're getting all the water they need but I don't have supplemental lights hanging on them and they're experiencing the short days. And so, so they're dropping their leaves. They're, the oaks the oaks are turning their colors and they'll drop their leaves all on their own, even though it'll never get cold in there. Now, having said that, so that, that leaves our dates always in like the third to fourth week of October. But when we get really, really dry weather, as we were talking about earlier a bit, that can cause it to be moved up sooner uh, because the trees start breaking down sooner because it's so dry. As I said, they're kind of given up. You know, it's time to start breaking the chlorophyll down. And then even when that happens, the, the colors underneath, the yellow is always there when the chlorophyll breaks down. Uh, the yellow won't hang around long either, and the leaves won't hang around as long either. So I, what I always say is that the you have this one date, but it can move up seven days or move back seven days. And that's about all I, gen, you know, maybe up to even 10 days. Mm-hmm. I, I have this one set of pictures of, a, of an ash tree that's in front of our uh, building here. And uh, in... 2019 on October 23rd, it was brilliant yellow, beautiful. The very next year on the exact same date, there was no foliage left on it. Uh, so I, I, like I said, I don't have a published research paper, but I've got a lot of photographs and uh, visiting these trees the same time. You know, I'll go there and I'll say, oh, this is interesting. This tree already had its leaves gone last year, you know, and then it won't be this year. Or, hey, this tree was bright red last year when we got here and it's still kind of greenish. Uh, Or I'll say, oh, this isn't as bright red as it was last year. But, you know, that's when it's really, really dry and the dogwoods in the understory are kind of, you know, you've seen this, they're kind of drooping themselves. Mm -hmm. Out in the forest, they're going to kind of get droopy. Uh, which brings us back to not, nothing's looking droopy <laughs> so far this year. So things were really look like we're on a good track. Good, good. Yeah, and it's good to know, you know, it's day length is the biggest uh, factor in that. And that explains also the ginkgo drop, you know, that quick drop overnight that we alluded to before, because that's obviously day or night length uh, indicative. Yeah. Now, I think possibly I, I think with the ginkgo, they, they go through their color change sequence. But uh, I think I've read something. Uh, don't quote me on this. I think that like it's a really hard freeze that causes them to finally fall off mm-hmm. in that all at once like that. So, you know, I suppose that could move a little bit. But, it, it, you know, sooner, you know, we always get one night all of a sudden, boom. And I, and I think that's what causes them to finally fall on the come off and come on the ground. Hmm. And so your studies also focus on environmental stressors. And I wanted to ask, as we wrap up, a little bit about pollution and urban trees and street trees and, and what you're finding um, uh, 
is affecting our street trees the most? Yeah, you know, the, we have an entire degree program in this, you know, the management of urban trees. Uh, I mean, it's literally a different track than our regular forestry students uh, because there's a lot going on with urban trees. And I have to bring this back to color change for a minute here. Uh, one thing I also caution people is don't base your peak weekend looking at urban trees uh, because they'll go at all different times because they are under such severe stress, largely uh, because of really bad soil conditions. If there was anything that you're going to pick just one thing, it's bad soil conditions. They're, they're basically stuck into very s small pots, if we can call them that, not literally a pot, but when you're wedged in between the street, you know, and the sidewalk, you're in a pretty confined space. And then the soil that's put in there is not always the best stuff. Now, they can do that. Like, there's a lot of work that, that you can put in really good soil, but there's, all, there's not always the money to do that. And so for those, that, the, the below, it's a below ground reason most of the time how much root growth they can do given the confinement that they're in. And that causes them to change color at all different times, largely a lot sooner than the hillside. So I tell people, look, keep your eyes on the hillside as you're driving home from work when you're trying to pick your peak time. Don't, don't look at the, the tree in the parking lot as you walk out to the car. And there's another interesting reason that most people I've talked to have never thought about. These trees in the urban environment can have, they could have originated from very different parts of the country. Like you might know what nursery you bought it from, and that nursery might know what wholesale nursery they bought it from. Hmm. But then the wholesale nursery doesn't know what the original seed source was. And so as we, if you move trees far from their natural range, uh, you can really mess up uh, their leaf color change, their bud set times, and their bud break times. Uh, because they're also tied to day length. And if you move them, say, from the north to the south, like uh, a red maple that might originated up in northern New York and we planted it down here, uh, it can be really messed up waiting for the right time, the, the right day length. Like it, it occurs on a certain date up in New York state, but it occurs at a different date down here and they can find themselves uh, setting bud sooner or setting bud later, depending on which direction they got moved in the environment. So for those two reasons, the, the, the severe stress that the trees are under, and then they're not always from where you happen to have the tree planted. Uh, they're not good indicators of when the peak time's going to be. Uh, now, there's other things going on in the urban environment, but, uh, you know, like, as you mentioned, there can be runoff that contains oil from cars. There can be runoff from uh, people that are using pesticides on their lawns, and that stuff all makes it makes its ways to the, to the tree's root system. Uh, but I would say by far, most of the problems with urban trees uh, you need to look below ground, which no one ever really looks there, <laughs> but, but that's where it's all happening. Yeah. You know, it's a very common thing to like an urban tree. 
will flourish for like the first 10 years in a, in a tight, you know, parking lot location. And then I, as I say, they hit the wall, but what they really hit is sort of like the sides of their pot and they just find themselves in problems. They can't, they can't get enough water to deliver it to the foliage that they have. And that's when you start seeing uh, branches and the crown of the tree declining and dying back. It's, it's because the, the tree, the tree's doing what it needs to do. It's trying to keep its leaf area in balance with its root area. And they'll just stagnate. They, they, in a way, they, they, they can't dare produce more leaves because they can't deliver the water to it. And they're trying to stay in a balance and um, they eventually end up in, in trouble because they're, they're just stagnating in that location. And then, and then on top of that, you know, we get one of our four weeks, oh boy, it hasn't rained, you know, July to August. And they're in a really bad situation for that. Uh, and so it's sort of like not watering your trees in the greenhouse that are in pots. And uh, so a, ba- a bad year can be really, really bad for a tree in an urban environment that uh, has a really confined root system. Interesting. Well, as great points about urban trees and those you might see at a collection, say at the U.S. National Arboretum um, and and not to think about those as being the same timing because a lot of times those have been uh, collected in other countries and brought back here, you know, for display in that collection. Yeah. You know, a really specific example. Uh, If you had a Norway spruce that its seeds originated from far, (laughs) far, far up in Norway and you planted it down on the Southern end, uh, it needs a really, really long day length to continue to grow. And if you can actually plant it at the southern end of the Norway spruce range, and the day lengths never long enough to maintain elongation. So this poor tree, and I've actually witnessed this like in a greenhouse, <laughs> the, mm. the, the minute basically the tree breaks bud in the springtime, the day length's not long enough. And it immediately, immediately starts setting bud. And so they'll, they'll almost look like dwarfs, but it's not a genetic thing. It's an environmental problem that's going on. You've moved it so far. So basically the the safest thing for, for anything, horticulture or forestry is plant local seed source. That's the most single important thing you can, you can do. Great point. Which that that's hard to do when you're purchasing trees at nurseries, <laughs> yeah, because they often won't have any idea where it originated. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. that would be a, a tough one to to find out unless you collected that seed yourself. Yeah, which exactly you know, uh, we here at Virginia Tech we have we're really fortunate. We have an eleven acre eleven acre old growth forest known as Stadium Woods, and uh, it's over by the stadium. Hence hence the nickname. And we are, we collect acorns from those trees and we raise them in our greenhouse here, our forestry greenhouse. And they are used specifically for planting along the edges of stadium woods uh, to expand the buffer edge zone of stadium woods. So you're right. We're, we're fortunate we can go get our own. 
uh, and most people couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And so if listeners want to contact you or find out more, how would they do so? Ah, well, probably the easiest thing to do would be to Google Dr. Dendro and and or use our free Tree ID app. That's called VTree, V-T-R-E-E. And you can send an email directly to Dr. Dendro from the app, or you can send an email to me uh, from finding me on the Internet. Uh, and alternatively, they can send an email to my office email as well. Uh, but Dr. Dendro is available for everybody out there. And I did note that you have a Dr. Dendro Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's not where I don't send the, I'll answer questions there, but uh, the Dr. Dendro, as I have it set up, that it comes into my email and mm-hmm. I, I'm way more responsive to that. Okay, than the great Facebook. to know. Yeah, mostly that's tree identification, but mm-hmm. I'll, you know, a lot of times when people ask me disease questions, I'll say they, you know, they really need to find a tree pathologist, but I'll, but I'll try to help even on those if I know a little bit about Well, thank you so much, and we're looking forward to that fall color peak at the mid to late October in our region, and anything else you want to share with listeners? No, other than uh, get out there and and explore. I always tell people, don't be afraid to make that left turn down the little state highway because you might find a new area and some surprise good colored trees down there. So uh, I'm not saying to turn down any unsafe looking roads, but (laughs) But just do some exploring, you know, get off, get off the path and head into the mountains. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Colchicum plant profile. Colchicum is a perennial bulb that blooms in the fall. They are often referred to as autumn crocus although they are actually members of the lily family. You can tell the difference by counting the number of stamens. Crocus has three, while colchicum has six. The flowers come in shades of purple, pink, and white. Note that all parts of the colchicum plant are toxic, so deer and other critters leave it alone. This bulb is native to Europe, Africa, and Asia. They are hardy to zones 4 through 8. This bulb prefers to be planted in rich, well-draining soil in part shade to full sun. The leaves appear in the spring and look similar to a small hosta. The foliage then dies back in summer, and in the fall, the blooms emerge without any surrounding foliage. When ordering colchicum bulbs, they can arrive with a flower already emerging. If that happens, just plant them with the flower stem above the soil level. It doesn't need fertilizing, but you can add compost and leaf mulch around it as a soil amendment. Colchicum, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, my purple asters are blooming, but that's not enough color for me. So I went and bought some mums to place on both sides of my front steps. And they're a cheery pink purple. Over at the community garden plot, 
the seedlings of lettuce and peas are popping up and I think we're gonna get a good uh, crop before we get a hard frost. In the local gardening world, a couple events to look out for. On Saturday, October 8th is the Green Fest at Oxen Run Park and that's from 10 to 6 p.m. The event is hosted by the Friends of Oxen Run and it's a community think green, grows green, and eats green. And on that same date, multiple Mid-Atlantic units of the Herb Society of America will host a chili celebration at the National Arboretum. And that's gonna be from one to 4 p.m. on that Saturday, October 8th. Visitors can learn about chili peppers, try different varieties, and taste an array of foods infused with chilies like salsa, hot chocolate, and pickled peppers. That event is free and open to the public as is the one at Oxen Run Park and uh, the Arboretum one you want to find in the National Herb Garden near the Visitor Center at the R Street entrance. That same weekend, the White House is opening its gardens again for tours, and that takes place both Saturday, October 8th, and Sunday, October 9th. Tickets are free. You just have to go to the park and claim them one per person for entry and that's timed throughout the day and uh, one event i wanted to let you know about that washington gardener magazine is hosting and this is virtually online our last garden book club selection of the year and we're going to be discussing one man's garden by henry mitchell who was the weekly earthman columnist in the washington post for many years and I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with his columns. So they were put together in a few different editions of books. This one we're discussing is One Man's Garden. And the discussion will be on Thursday, November 17th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. via Zoom. And you can find the link to sign up for that Zoom registration on our website and blog at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. 
So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.